Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers. I'm here today with Fiona Greenland, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia, to talk about her new book, Ruling Culture, Art Police, Tomb Raiders, and the Rise of Cultural Power in Italy, out March 2021 with the University of Chicago Press. Hello, Fiona, and welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Yana. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I am so good. I'm so glad to talk to you. How are you holding up over there? We're holding up just fine. It's a mid-February day in central Virginia. We're getting hit with snow again, but it's absolutely beautiful outside the window. Oh, that's so nice. You know, it is really beautiful. We had winter last week and it was great. Uh, It's back up in the 50s Fahrenheit today, so... None of that, but it's it's it is so pretty. But I'm a you know I'm a winter lover. So mm-hmm. me too. Grew up in a cold climate. This feels just like home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, like with the weather, I wasn't sure we're going to be able to connect today. So I'm really glad we have. Um, it's so let's a little get into this with the ice, but having the excuse to talk about sunny Italy um, warms my heart. Yeah, absolutely. I'm beginning to wonder if I'm ever going to get there again. Um, it will travel again, right? This will end. It this will end. end. It will end. All right. All right, let's get into it. So my first question is always about placing the current work in the author's intellectual and ag- academic trajectory. And usually that involves me just quickly characterizing a very clear field of study and trajectory. That is a little tougher with your CV. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have uh, several, I can, I can uh, pull together several different threads and you've just edited a book, Cultural Violence and the Destruction of Human Communities, that deals with, it seems, uh, genocide and then the destruction of cultural artifacts kind of as a proxy for genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, and this represents a couple of the threads I see throughout your work, material culture, of course, but also slavery about which you write a great deal. And uh, your person, your CV, your personal history also shows a penchant for archaeology and actual archaeological work, and then some interest in marriage and family. So you seem to have really broad interests, mm-hmm. and um, and in this way, that's it's a fascinating. So perhaps you can help me characterize your interests and how they come together with ruling culture. How did you come to write this book? Thanks for that. Yeah, I was a classical archaeologist for many years before coming to sociology. So I did my first doctorate in classical archaeology, and that involved field work in Italy and in Spain. And I studied the um, encroachment of Roman culture into uh, Western Spain. And I grew very interested in the uses of material culture then and now. So a persistent thread of work through my research has been antiquity in modernity. And I say that deliberately because um, it's more than reception studies, right, which is the study of how um, people um, regard, interpret, and use um, artworks and artifacts. For me, antiquity in modernity is an active process of using artifacts, images, and texts from ancient periods to propel um, contemporary practices, processes, and ideas. So this work on Syria that you cite is part of my new project, 
trying to understand the ways in which antiquities have been exploited um, and resurrected to um, mobilize um, different um, groups claiming power during the Syrian war, and also how it's been used to um, intimidate local people, but then how they're rebuilding communities by reclaiming um, antiquities and, and the ruins in their midst. So I would say that ruling culture encapsulates much of this. The focus is on Italy. Um, that's kind of like the first and natural area of study for me, going back to my undergraduate days, really. But to then to bring together antiquity and modernity in Italy also involves structuring the study um, very much around social relationships. And that's where the um, sociological training comes into the project. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that tracks, as the kids say. Um, yeah, I, I can see this. Uh, interesting choice, another PhD. Right. <laughs> it's not for everybody. It has worked for me. Yeah, not for everybody, but no, um, excellent choice. Um, yeah, it, that is a pretty rare event. Most people stop at the one. Um, yeah, and I think it's important to underscore that the sociological training was a really important continuation, right, mm -hmm. of many of the um, ideas, methods, and concepts that I started in classical archaeology. Um, sociology, of course, attends to questions of culture, power, mm -hmm. symbols, the visual realm, aesthetics and politics. Um, so I like to think that it was a second phase building on that work rather than a pivot to a completely different field. Yeah, I fully, that, fully see that. That makes lots of sense. And I mean, everybody will ideally everybody continues to learn and moves on in, in slightly different directions. Very few people spend their whole careers writing the same book over and over again. That makes perfect sense. Right. That's a good um, point. So with this in particular, did you see, um, I, I can see how you can, how you came to it and how it fits in your interest. Was there a hole in the scholarship that you really felt that it needed to be filled? Yes. And I think a way to get into that question is to explain a little bit how this project came to be. So the project started as an investigation of archeological teams and how they work together in the field to create knowledge. And as I say in the book, this is a fairly bread and butter kind of project in sociological studies of science, um, how it is people collaborate to create ideas. And it was on that basis that I was embedded in an archaeological team in central Italy. And one morning we arrived at the site and discovered that it had been burgled overnight. And this event kicks off the second chapter of my book. The dig director, a woman whom I call Corinna, called the police. Now, if you had asked me before this how I imagined an archaeological site theft being investigated in Italy, I would have guessed a SWAT team arriving for a thorough investigation and a dragnet search of the surroundings, you know, dusting for fingerprints and scouring the area for forensic evidence. But that is not what happened. The police arrived and they conducted an inspection of the area. They took notes. They took some photographs. They interviewed the dig director and her assistant, and then they drove away. So the whole thing took a couple of hours. And when I asked Corinna about it afterward, she was frustrated. She threw up her hands in despair. 
And she said this was just how it was and that the police were unlikely to be able to provide any meaningful help. Now, I should insert here that I have no reason to think the officers did not do their job thoroughly or professionally. Her point was that this was one of many such incidents happening throughout the country. And when Karina said there wasn't much the police could do, it turned out she was referring to the endemic nature of small-scale artifact theft. So on the basis of this event, I changed my research focus from how team dynamics Oh, sorry, from team dynamics to looting dynamics, essentially. And this was what I thought was really missing from the literature, an understanding of how looting coexists with one of the world's farthest reaching and celebrated national regimes of cultural heritage protection. Coexists with, not persists in spite of. I really wanted to understand how they work together. Yeah, um, and that, that requires understanding Italy as well, which I will get to in a second. Um, so uh, so what do you what would you say? Let's get this out of the way real, real quick. What would you say is your overarching argument? So I argue that tomb robbing, which is the illicit removal of archaeological materials, is a co-constitutive process of cultural heritage in Italy. So this means that it is doing something important to bolster the cultural identity, the self-fashioning, and the ways in which this collective Italian community thinks about themselves with reference to their material history. So this is like an important thing to clarify, right? So by saying co-constitutive, I don't mean that um, the Italian authorities encourage tomb robbing or want tomb robbing. If you ask anyone, archaeologist or art police um, or ordinary citizen and what they think of tomb robbing, they'll tell you it's terrible. I am interested, however, in why looting persists and why, in spite of 50 years of concerted government activity to the contrary, archaeological materials continue to be removed illegally and sometimes bought and sold. And I think these are important questions, right? Because they connect to broader discussions about the nature of cultural heritage and who has the right to objects and the appropriateness of market interventions. And I also think, you know, these questions speak, frankly, to accusations that Italy does not adequately look after its cultural heritage. And this accusation of mismanagement is a trope that is deployed at particular inflection points. I'm interested in whether there's truth in that trope. And I think it's an empirical question and one that I take up in the book. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Italy herself is a major character in this book. Um, and kind of what constitutes Italy and what how Italians develop and how the nation of Italy has developed its self-definition, how Italians define Italy. Um, and so in your in your introduction, you cite a statistic that I also have heard dozens, if not hundreds of times from Italians, that Italy has 60% of the world's artistic cultural patrimony. And I have heard numbers even higher than that, right? And uh, then the words of President Carlo Ciampi, that Italy is the world's greatest cultural power. So like, let's unpack that. 
how do you get to say what needs to be in place for you to suggest that you're the world's greatest cultural power and that you you are responsible for 60% of global cultural patrimony? <laughs> I'm <laughs> delighted that you too found these numbers interesting. And as a fellow Italianist, you'll know that part of this is cultural. Um, you live in Italy and you're steeped in culture and history and art. And so it feels only right and natural um, that this um, beautiful um, culture and shared heritage admired all over the world constitutes something truly unique in global history. Now, there's a way that we can attend to these numbers um, social scientifically. So sometimes these percentage claims are rooted in um, lists and inventories. Uh, so the UNESCO World Heritage Site list would be a classic example. For many years, Italy had more World Heritage Sites than any other country, even countries with much, much larger land masses. Um, it was only in the last year that China tied Italy for its numbers of World Heritage Sites. So one thing is you can look at that list, right, and point to it and say, ah, here's a percentage share, Italy, more sites than these other countries. Um, let's say that we have this percentage claim. Another way that these numbers have been generated is by looking at um, tourist revenues, um, different um, shares in comparison with other highly um, touristed countries, touristed on the basis of their culture. And still, there's another way of generating um, numbers by looking at um, how many um, sites around the world have drawn influence implicitly or explicitly from Italian art and culture. Of course, mm -hmm. these are difficult numbers to pin down, um, but I think the way to understand these numbers is that they are signifying something. So rather than launch an actuarial examination of these percentages, to see them as symbolizing or representing an idea about the centrality and the influence of Italian art and culture. And I mean, it reflects, I think uh, it reflects a truism regarding this living in Italy, being in Italy, which is just how much art and artifact and how much, like, how many archaeological sites it, there are and what your average day is. You, on any given day, you walk by countless, priceless, beautiful works of art. Right. Constantly. That's and, hmm? That's exactly right. Couldn't put it better. You know, um, and it, it is overwhelming. Um, I, you know, I, I, as I was mentioning to you, I worked in a place off San Mac Square where I walked through this passageway that was littered with Roman statuary this, and, and Renaissance statuary. People were sitting on columns like to smoke. Um, <laughs> and as an American, I was completely blown away by that. But as an Italian, it's like, oh, but this, whatever. You know, it's just everywhere. Right. Um, of course, there's also something there about um, perceptions about what matters and what is culture, you know. Exactly. You know, this is such a beautiful, this lovely image of the locals hanging out on column drums, um, smoking, right? Yes. And it's trite to say, but true, that antiquities and art are woven into the fabric of daily life in Italy. Um, one of the people I interviewed for this project, I call him Nino, 
told me that um, from a young age, Italians get hit with massive doses of antiquity, and not just in a formal pedagogical sense or trips to the museum, but he really meant growing up in towns where indeed the furnishings of daily life are antiquities. And because people have to get on with their lives, have to get to work, have to get to the shops, have to repair their roofs, um, there will be encounters with antiquities that might be unsettling to us as Americans where um, what counts as old is very different and Mm -hmm. reified, fetishized and protected in very different ways. Sure. It's absolutely right to characterize this as as built into the fabric and then to understand this as um, informative for much of what has happened in Italian cultural policy in the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the other thing, of course, that like, I guess, I do, do we do we talk about like, I don't even know if I've ever if we discuss with with other with non Italians, that basically everyone we know has illegal stuff, right? <laughs> Like every farm has stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you mentioned in your book a foot, a casual foot that might be on a on a shelf or something. That's right. That's right. Um, part of my engagement with this project was to attend to many different sorts of relationships between people and artifacts. And tomb robbers are one of them. And in chapter four, I discuss several different characters and the ways in which they um, dug illegally and justify it. But then also point out that just as you're saying, it is not uncommon to find um, pottery fragments or entire amphorae in households. Um, And they've been there maybe as the background furnishings or decor for so long that nobody really remembers where they came from. No, and they're not they're not important except, you know, if you ask about them then there's an immense amount of pride about Italian cultural heritage and beautiful art, but um they have a very different, you know, this very different place in life. I mean, which gets to another question, which is like what is grave robbing and what's what's the border there, these very porous walls between grave robbing and just grabbing stuff? You know, what what constitutes, what's the difference between an archaeologist and a grave robber? Mm. Um, That is, in many ways, an easier question to answer than what's the difference between a a collector and a full-time tombarolo, right? This Italian word for for grave robber. To attend to your first question, archaeologists are um, digging with permits and using scientific methods to excavate. Um, And really clearly a singular feature that would um, separate an archaeologist from a tomb robber is that archaeologists are not primarily looking for artifacts. The point to an archaeological dig is not to go in um, looking for treasure. It's to um, peel back layers of past inhabitation and look for any type of material clue to past inhabitation. So that might be collecting faunal specimens. It might be measuring the foundations of walls um, and buildings. Um, and it might be not removing anything, right? Like not actually finding coins or statuettes or vases. So, you know, there's um, much in the public imagination right now around archaeology and the finding of things um, just would emphasize that when archaeologists go about their field work, um, 
objects are part of the work, but not the point to it. Now we can then shift the ledger line over to what tomb robbers are doing. And that's a different kind of pursuit um, where they are actively looking for objects. And here in the book is where I say sometimes to sell, but sometimes to keep, to trade, to hold on to. And then I think we're back in the realm that you gestured towards where people are keeping artifacts and family pride and stories become attached to them over the years. Mm-hmm. And there, there are two points here kind of to parse, which is, first of all, that I don't think most people understand um, what an archaeological dig is, right? Like, I, I, I think people envision some like Indiana Jones and... It really is not that. (laughs) Right. Right. It's not, right? And I enjoy popular archaeology as much as anybody else. Um, I loved The Dig, this new uh, film about um, the Sutton Who finding in England. Um, I watched the Detectorist series. Um, And yes, I go watch the the cheesy Hollywood archaeology films when they come out too. Um, But that is... um, really different, right, to the daily work of an archaeologist. Um, And so I think that this, uh, what I want to highlight there is that there are some illicit diggers who go do their work with a notion of responsibility and ethic. And so I come across these examples in my interviews where illicit diggers, where Tumbaroli, um, adopt ethical positions and how important it is for them to separate themselves from the true scoundrels who are breaking in to underground um, shafts, taking things, destroying, carelessly and needlessly destroying things that aren't saleable, and then um, fencing the objects. So there was quite a bit of ethical maneuvering in these conversations that I had so that people were making clear to me there's always another worse tomb robber beneath them. Sure. And and then this also gets at something, too. The, one of the differences um, is permits, that you're doing this not just for scientific purposes, not just with intent, but who is in charge, right? Who gets to be and who has control over this? And that's another really important theme in your book. Absolutely. So permits are issued by the authorities through the Ministry of Culture and then the local archaeological superintendency or the um, superintendencies. And um, permits are issued through a rigorous application process. The archaeologists have to show that they have the resources, the skills, and the um, setup to be able to excavate in an ethical and responsible manner. And also that they have a plan for preserving any findings and protecting the site. So yes, this is very much an elaborate process. Um, Tomb robbers circumvent that process by going straight to the source. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we were just kind of in, uh, indicating, Italy is often called and is in some ways an open air museum, right? There's just goods everywhere. There are also these epic uh, buildings, right? Just monumental architecture is is the skyline. Um, and obviously that is Italian. It can't go anywhere um, and it needs to be cared for. There, People have to clean it, guard it, what have you. That's not, there's no difficulty here deciding at this stage in history who's in charge of that. But then there is this question about things, 
right? What, um, how much, how many of these things does Italy own? Is an art that was made by an Italian artist Italian? And at what point, how long do they get to claim things? Like to what does Italy own? Like, or how, how far does their uh, reach, how far can they reach? I think that maybe that's my question. Yes. Yes. And now we've really got to the heart of the matter. Early in my project, I encountered this term, the open air museum, and I delighted in it because it's so evocative. And yet, as soon as I tried to unpack it, I came up with a series of internal contradictions. I mean, what does it even mean to have an open air museum, to be an open air museum? Museums, right, um, are by definition an enclosed and set apart space, set apart from the daily grind so that objects can be protected and conserved, and also so that they can be displayed in special places. Um, so open air, firstly, makes no sense, right? It's like, um, in theory, available to everybody. And then also, then what are the limits? If really, theoretically, everything in Italy is part of a museum, then we have the world's largest conservation project right in front of us. And um, and it raises interesting questions, right? So I um, thought, as I was writing this book, how I could structure the material around the concept of an open-air museum. And that involves objects, display spaces, experts and audiences, and above all, competing narratives about what those objects mean. And here I think we can go right to your question about how many objects there are and what counts as Italian. So indeed, we can take the example of a building still standing, sunk into the ground, um, obviously Italian. And then we have maybe mid-range objects, large um, scale artworks or sculptures that are fixed on a base. Those two have some permanency. And then we can shift again to small things, to the bits and pieces as they were often referred to in my um, interviews. And they're so portable and they're so small. Why shouldn't they travel? Who will really miss them? Now I'm asking these questions rhetorically and they were questions that I asked myself as I um, carried out the project. And, you know, above all, as a sociologist, I was always aware that I'm looking at a topic that is normally the terrain of art historians, archaeologists, and Italian historians. And scholars in many fields have written terrific studies of the movement of artifacts and artworks into and out of the country. But what I was committed to at the outset was a sociological approach Mm -hmm. to objects and the antiquities market. And so I wanted to look at the antiquities market, not just as an economic question in terms of supply and demand, how many objects are there, how many willing buyers are there, but I wanted to approach it by asking about the relationships or networks around which um, antiquities markets are built. So what was the antiquities market there for, whose interests are being served today? So you asked a question about um, definitions. And there are some clear definitions 
laid out in the law about an object age, 50 years or more, about its provenance being made in or found in Italy, and then many different categories of types of object, um, not only artwork and antiquities, but also ethnographic materials. Now, um, many more sorts of like natural materials are included in this. So there, um, there is this like large body of um, policy in this legislative framework that has been built up over more than a hundred years. Even so, it's difficult to arrive at hard and fast um, definitions in ways that satisfy these thorny questions about identity, national culture, and object movement. You know, I'm thinking about things like um, I have Roman coins right, that I show to my students when I'm teaching or that I've just collected because they're neat. Um, how is that not patrimony, um, you know, but I can't take a pot shard? And I understand that I can't, but I just, this is an interesting place to draw a line, I think. Mm, that's right. So one way to get at that is to ask about the provenance of the coins. I'm going to assume that you got them from... Um, a, a, a legitimate source, a shop. Legally, yes, absolutely. <laughs> right? You know, if you'd found those coins on a trip to the archives, you would have been obligated to um, turn them in to local archaeological authorities um, or the police, and then they would turn them over. Yes, anything, even as small as a coin fragment. Um, and then it belongs to them. That's not the case in the U.S., right, where there's um, a different sensibility about object ownership. But then if we could go back to um, the pot shirt, that too is technically um, the presumed property of the Italian state. And what that means is that until proven otherwise, it, the owner is the, um, is the national government. And that's been a framework that's been in place since um, 1909 and evolved over the years through different legal um, additions. And here is where I think, you know, we can step away from the history and the policy and get to some bigger picture questions about meaning. Um, and this is where I think conversations have hit the wall over the years, and not just in Italy, but that in, in other source countries that have sought to um, restitute or repatriate objects. And it is like, in a way, um, about how much meaning or attachment that pot shard can be proven to have. And I think that discussion, right, about symbolism and representation gets us only so far, often it has turned on the source country or the claimant having to prove an attachment. Say the potsherd example again, um, having to prove that that means something essential, that if it is moved out of the country, it's a loss for cultural heritage. You know, this is like a, a different sort of schema. If you're talking about um, very visible and symbolically resonant pieces, unique, like the Euphronius Crater that was returned from the Metropolitan Museum of Art to Italy in 2008. But when we're talking about smaller objects, then this question of representation um, quickly breaks down. So this is why in the book, I try out a different conceptual framework rather than pivot on questions of representation, I talk about materiality, fine spot, 
linkages to the earth and how these questions have also been really central to forming Italian cultural heritage um, policy and procedures. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm I, as an historian, I'm also interested as well in like why, how important this is as a 19th century and 20th century nation building kind of exercise as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And what I found was that the early reformers in the late 19th and early 20th century were deeply ambivalent about the art and antiquities market. And many people were not opposed to the market per se. In fact, the antiquities and art market were really central and sort of woven into political um, processes and, and discussions in Rome. Many people had interest in them. Um, there's a terrific book published last year by Joanna Smalltorch, and she, uh, the book is called Smuggling the Renaissance, and she looks very closely at the vast social networks that were in operation to move Renaissance art from collection to collection and then out of the country. Um, so, you know, like very much to your point, 19th century um, nation building is happening concurrently with national heritage building. Um, these are related processes. So ambivalence about the market, people were not opposed to it per se, but they did want an equitable art and antiquities market with more equitable market relations. And there was a feeling that Italians were being bought out, that foreigners, particularly wealthy American industrialists, had buying power that the Italian government couldn't match. And the way things were structured before the um, National Heritage Framework was, um, imp was um, implemented was that um, it really was um, a market in which the highest price um, fetched the object. Um, Obviously, I'm glossing many of the details, but after these attempts to reform the market failed, positions hardened, and we can now recognize those positions in many ways um, as thoroughly modern. So another way I want to like get at this is that I was surprised in doing the historical work on the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s by the deep-seated passions that were held by people at various points concerning the meaning of antiquities. Now, I don't think any of us alive can day, today can really put ourselves in the mindset of people in 1909. And I mean, like their references, their anxieties, and their aspirations can at best be approximated by the records. But to use the metaphor frequently associated with historical research, my method was to treat those records not as a window through which to look at historical actors, but as the window itself. In other words, those records are, I think, filling a gap between us and the late 19th century Italians. And, mm -hmm. and I think I just want to wrap up that point about method by saying that I think it's important to stress that there was not a single founding of national heritage in Italy. I point to 1909 as the year that lays a foundation stone. But there are multiple foundings. We can look at 1969 with the birth of the art squad as a second mm -hmm. founding. And I think that what is happening right now with heated discussions about private-public partnerships and the privatization of patrimony um, as constituting 
a third founding. Mm-hmm. Let's. Um, I want to get to that. Let's do it now. Let's talk about Diego de la Valla, mm-hmm. um, the CEO of Todd's, which is a rather nice Italian shoe and accessory brand, and his relationship with the Beni Culturale. Yeah, this is such an evocative and many ways watershed moment. So the Colosseum in Rome is one of the standout structures left from Roman antiquity. And any visitor to that building who's been there in the last 20 to 30 years knows that it has um, suffered from some structural decay. Mm -hmm. And for reasons to do with resources and some um, changed positions within the Ministry of Culture, Todd's was um, accepted as a funding partner to provide um, a significant contribution to the reconstruction of the Colosseum. Now, when this was first announced, there was outrage. There was considerable public objection because people worried that it would throw open the doors to privatization of patrimony everywhere. So there were some concessions, including um, some strict, um, some restrictions on how Todd's could use its logo in association with the Coliseum, um, whether it could feature the Coliseum in its advertising campaigns. Um, And there was you know, considerable, still considerable um, concern that this represented um, a shift that would be permanent in the Ministry of Culture's funding of nationally important sites. And people have been still worried that um, Diego de la Valle serves as a kind of um, icon or exemplar for other private firm leaders who want to bolster their company's reputation and prestige by funding patrimony projects. Yeah. And I think a note here we need to talk about, or just we need to at least note that there is an ongoing, like the way that the average Italian, whoever that might be, deals with the hyper rich and the idea of corruption in Italy is so it, corruption is such a fundamental part of life and or at least the ex, the expectation of corruption that i think that the reaction um it also just hits on this other kind of this other really inherent level you know i so agree with that that's right um this is also wrapped up in this conversation the concern is not just the inappropriateness or not of private capital being um, essential to rebuilding a building. It's also um, that this links with some known cases of corruption, of um, elected officials taking bribes, for example, um, from companies for um, new building projects. and just the endemic graft associated with private money coming into government projects. You're right, this is not a new thing when Todd's um, partners with the Coliseum. It is, though, reigniting that um, persistent anxiety in some new ways. And there is also a relationship, which we've kind of been talking about throughout this, our chat here. Uh, there's, there is a, a relationship that the, again, the average Italian 
has with their patrimony, right? Like being Italian means that you are part of the contribution of the most culturally like interesting civilization of all time. That's right. That when you are an Italian and grow up there and live there, you do have a sort of claim, right? This affinity by having um, been there all all along um, through uh, good days and and bad, that these um, objects um, are more than objects. They're part of the daily backdrop, um, really significant um, reminders of place, identity, and belonging. Um, And so then this casts the Colosseum and Todd's partnership in yet a different light, um, which is to say it removes it from the democratic sphere um, and kind of like shifts the um, upkeep and the care, the custodianship of this beloved structure to a private company. And I think that's another theme that really needs to be propounded here, that the concern with private patrimony or patrimony capital, as I term it, um, isn't just the money ought not to come from the private, it ought to come from the public. It's that when that happens, there's a piece of this um, discussion that gets moved out of democratic processes and mm-hmm. into um, um, CEO offices. Sure. Yeah. And the, the and then who knows if it'll ever come back. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so I'd like to talk about your sources. Um, I'm certain that almost none of our listeners have, much like they haven't been on a dig, probably most of our listeners have never taken part in, um, a research interview. Mm -hmm. And I think it would just, it would be interesting for you to tell them how to go about that. What, so you did interviews in Rome and Virgilia and Lazio and Campobella in Tuscany. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What were those like? Mm-hmm. Yep. And Virgilia and Campobello are um, pseudonyms in order to protect the identities of um, the Ill- illegal illicit diggers I spoke to. Um, I started out by making a series of ethnographic blunders. So we can just get right into the question by saying what not to do. I went in with um, good archaeological training and um yet a lot of unfamiliarity about this world of tomb robbing. So I detail in the book that one of my first forays into interviewing was to ask a man I called Domenico to tell me about his uncle. And I knew Domenico through the neighborhood in which I was renting an apartment. Um, And word had got to me that he would be a good person to talk to because he was an antiquities enthusiast. So we sat down for coffee. He talked about his uncle. It was clear to me that his uncle was um, an illicit digger and that Domenico had made many visits with him. So in asking Domenico to tell me about his uncle, I used the word tombarolo and a cloud came over his face. And it was one of the most mortifying moments in my field work. Um, I was made to understand that I had insulted him. Um, He put me in my place, reminding me that as a foreigner, um, there was much that I had to learn and that he was willing to overlook that. But um, that was a warning. I am grateful looking back on that moment because it was so informative um, how it was I needed to adjust my terminology but also my outlook on the entire 
topic. Um, it became kind of a joke as I wrote up my um, interview notes to see how many people distanced themselves from the term tombarolo, but were very willing to attach it to somebody else um, in an act of opprobrium. So my method was um, to not was to talk to people in depth and in private. And I did this very slowly over the period of a few years, um, trust ties through local communities where I was spending time. It was not a snowball sample. So I, I, this is a term for um, asking your informants to recommend other people to talk to, other people with similar experiences. Um, for ethical reasons, I could not and would not do that. I didn't yeah. want to implicate anybody. Um, so that made it a little more difficult. But what I was able to do, um, here we go again, back to the idea of the open air museum and the um, interwovenness of antiquities into the everyday fabric. Um, by using that as a guiding method, I was able to interweave myself into enough um, local community ties that I became comfortable asking um, about antiquities, about who knew what was happening at a local excavation site, who could tell me some things about it. I should also say that um, many of my overtures went nowhere. Um, you know, for every like book that's written with some um, interview um, and material that looks um, compelling and interesting, um, it doesn't show how many um, unreturned phone calls or slammed doors there were. Sure. Of course not. Yeah. I mean, good. Yeah. No one should have to know what that looks like. <laughs> They'll have enough of their own. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I'm getting the, the picture talking to you. I get the idea that there are people who, I mean, uh, collectors, tomb robbers, kind of wherever on that cycle, but these people tend to have a lot of it there. They have some power, that is perhaps illegitimate, but not necessarily illicit. People in their communities know who they are um, and that there's not a lot of opprobrium. Is that appropriate? Is that correct? That's right. Yes. And another way to say that would be that it's an activity that is normalized at every level, the family level, the community level. And then occasionally through um, exemplary figures like Omero Bordo, a mm -hmm. tomb robber, a celebrity tomb robber, who I discussed throughout the book. Mm -hmm. What could make it go wrong? Would that be like selling to an American or? Sure. So um, it, that, that would count. Um, why might a community um, no longer accept um, illicit digging if it's drawing unwanted attention, but also I think more fundamentally, if it's violating local understandings of trust and, um, and we could say like shared um, resources or, or shared commitment to the culture. So I'm thinking here about some experiences that I had doing field work where um, it was understood that it was a bit of an embarrassing activity still to be harboring tomb robbers, um, but that also it was understood with grudging acceptance to be part of how life is there. And I think that a violation of that trust would be um, wanton destruction of a site, removing things and selling them, and sort of exulting in it, sort of um, rubbing it in people's faces, and then selling to outsiders. So 
you know, would that trigger a phone call to the authorities? It might. It might also be that it results in being iced out of local community relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this is just another great demonstration of the of the the relationship, this ongoing negotiation of defining what is what is acceptable, what isn't, who has power, who owns these things, like, to whom this this patrimony belongs, um, and uh, yeah, and the and the the passion, the simple passion that is still there, which I really appreciate. Yes, um, yes, and for these reasons, you know, I I took. Uh, an anthropological term, cultural intimacy, taken from Michael Hertzfeld, to refer to the um, known practices within a community that would be seen with embarrassment if exposed to outsiders, but that are part of the community's um, way of being together. So cultural intimacy for me really helped to make sense of the place of um, tomb robbing today and why it has been normalized and still tolerated in some places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Um, and and there's also you know these there are some communities particularly rural communities in Italy there, there are families who have been there for generations have known each other for many 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 years. That's right. That's right. And that's one of the tensions I explore in my Campobello interviews that there are people living in Campobello who were once employed by this local archaeological project and they themselves were digging right and. Um, over the years, they were replaced by archaeology students. The project was restructured. Their services were no longer needed. And some of them are really miffed. Like, you know, guys, I've lived here my entire life. I'm like a five-generation family in this area. You're bringing in these American 20-year-olds who have a few years of training under their belt. What did they know about the soil that I don't? So this idea of being attached to the soil is very meaningful to them and very deep. And, you know, look, I also cast that sense of place in a longer historical framework because there's also an idea here that there's um, there can be such a thing as an essential Italian through his or her connection to the earth. And that has also been used um, problematically, right, connected with some mm-hmm. ideologies of exclusion. But it's worth, I think, engaging with that critically to understand how that feel, where that feeling comes from, and how it's connecting to other things. Yeah, autochthony—the idea that you are correct of the earth, right, and 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 thus of a place, and thus uh, are more like entitled to it. Um, That's right. Which I think I see. Um, it's still, it sounds, there's always, there's this kind of cloak and dagger feel when we're thinking about tomb robbers. It's very entertaining, but it, it, it doesn't sound like it's all that exciting. There seems like there are fewer fedoras than I was hoping for. <laughs> I think the fedoras are still there. Um, yeah, there, that's right. There, there is also a piece of this that's connected with, um, like different spaces of organized crime. That's not something I touch in my book. And because of where I did my work, um, smallish towns in central and Northern Italy, I was really out of the ambit of um, larger organized efforts. And so the cloak and dagger aspect is actually important for another reason. And that is that the Tombaroli themselves like to fashion themselves in this garb, in this guise of the adventurer, 
of the swashbuckler. So this is where notions of masculinity and virility come in, and that is woven throughout the book. Whether it's Mussolini himself posing as the ultimate archaeologist with his pickaxe, trying to tear down the old slums of Rome. Fast forward to um, the contemporary period and Tombaroli, who want to be like Indiana Jones, who see themselves like scaling down um, the shafts to get to long forgotten tombs. There's definitely an element of the um, fedora and the cloak and dagger in the ways in which they imagine themselves and in the kinds of models that they put out there for themselves. You know, this like struggle for identity and Italianness is for them a struggle that's lived in the body. Sure. And, you know, Mussolini is an excellent example of that, right? With his um, his absolute obsession with Rome and and the imagery there and the cultural patrimony of, of Rome, but ancient Rome. Yes, absolutely highlight that last part, right? Ancient Rome. He's not interested in um, the late antique, in um, the medieval period, in the early modern period. Like He wants to explode that and get to this essential for him core of um, Italianness, of Romanità. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me um, really angry sometimes. I think like I was, just, I was born like just like 40 years too late to see medieval Rome. Right, right. <laughs> he destroys it. Um, and, you know, the ideal and virility. And yeah, there's a lot there. All right. I am. I have taken up a bunch of your time. So we're closing in. Um, so a couple things. Um, first of all, so if I wanted to buy a Roman bust, is that possible still? Like, is there, is that like, as a, assuming I obviously have considerably more money than I do, like, is that, that's still an option? My first advice is don't buy a Roman bust. If you, if you must, um, you need to check the provenance. It should be um, properly and professionally sourced. And that means that it um, has been, if it's removed from um, Italy, that it has all documentation that shows that that was um, acceptably removed. Okay. Um, that it's not coming up. That's not a thing I intend to do. I just wondered if there's still a legal market or an illegal yeah. market in antiquities. That's right. There is there is still a legal market in antiquities, and you can find um, things for sale in um, in vendors and in auction catalogs and even online. Proceed with caution. Yeah, I would imagine. Okay. Well. Um, all right, listeners. Now you know. Um, and then, you know, actually a, a real question. So what's next? What are you working on now? So right now I'm moving on with this um, Syria project. So I've been studying the use of antiquities in Syria during the war, their destruction and exploitation, but also now how communities are rebuilding um, with um antiquities and um, cultural objects. So this has been um, an interdisciplinary and um, collaborative project, whereas Italy was largely a solo venture. Um, This project on Syria has me working with um, people from different institutions um, across the globe, and it very much continues my interest in antiquity and modernity. So that's Mm -hmm. what's um, current and next for me. How are how are you doing research? How is that working during COVID? Yeah, well, COVID and Syria. Yes, I've not been able to travel to Syria, and I don't think that picture is going to change this year. Mm-hmm. Luckily, no. I have some fantastic collaborators um, 
who are from Syria, who spent um, a significant amount of time in the country during the war, who are now working out of the country, but who have um, very helpful observations and data and are still closely connected with uh, local communities there. So um, my data consists primarily of um, satellite images, um, remote sensing, and um, other people's observations of what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is an exciting project for me too, because it's a different way of working with antiquities, um, very much reliant on digital imagery. And and it's an exciting place to work right now. Sure. Yeah. And it's a very important work right now. What you're doing is very important there. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I am very excited about reading that. Thank you. Uh, Fiona, thank you so much. Uh, so the book is out soon. Another, what, about a month? March. You can March. Yeah, you can pre-order it, listeners. You can pre-order it on, uh, follow the link on our website. Um, that is fantastic. And thank you again. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Anna. It was a great pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you.